This is the Industrial IoT Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. We have seen the emergence of what I call modern Internet of Things. It's really the connectivity piece and the data aggregation piece that is usually missing in the infrastructure right now in the market. Yes, this is the IoT Podcast, and I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. Coming up on the show, we have two pieces of content on this week's program, the first of which is an interview with Paul Doherty, the founder and CEO of The Digit Group. And we're going to talk about smart city technology and its growth around the world, especially in China and the Middle East, where in both cases, they seem to be growing rapidly. Now, especially in China, this is due to mass migration into city centers. And what they're trying to do with smart cities is employ this technology in some of the cities before you get to the Far East Coast, where you have overcrowding cities. So they're trying to stop some of the migration in cities before you get to the three major cities that are overcrowded right now on the East Coast of China. This is an extremely interesting topic to me, and he's going to talk a lot about how he's able to do this and what kind of technology they're really investing in, as well as some smart transportation technology that is taking place in the United States. So all of that is coming up in the interview with Paul Doherty. That's going to be the first feature on the show today. Our second feature of the day is going to focus on the 2019 Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society Conference, known as HIMSS for short, that took place back from February 11th through the 15th in Orlando, Florida. And we're going to talk to Irma Rastagayava. Uh, she's an industry-noted expert in connected health and IoT and the founder of Evira Health. And she's going to point out several applications of technology and IoT that really impressed her while she was there at the show. One of them is Ethan, that stands for emergency telehealth and navigation that's been rolled out recently by the city of Houston. So we're going to dive a little bit more into that technology as well. That'll be the second feature on today's episode. So lots of great stuff coming up on the show. You don't need to hear more from me. You want to hear from the experts. So let's dive into that first feature of the show today. It's my conversation with Paul Doherty coming up next here on the Market Scale IoT Podcast. now on the podcast is Paul Doherty. He's the founder and CEO of The Digit Group, as well as an IFMA fellow. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, sir. Thank you, Tyler. Absolutely. So today we are talking about smart city technology and its growth around the world. And so, Paul, I just wanted to start off by asking you, what are some places around the world where smart cities are growing the fastest? Well, I probably frame it up by putting it into two different categories, right? One are the greenfield brand new cities that are emerging because of the urbanization of a lot of countries that are more or less catching up to being part of modern times. And then there's the existing cities that are trying to change their stripes, almost like an urban renewal type of uh, exercise that, that they need to go through. But both of them are being driven by the migration of humanity into urban environments that the world has never seen before. Um, all the estimates from UN to uh, Brookings to all these different groups that that, that are validated, uh, they're all saying that by you know the year 2050, I mean we're upwards of 80% of humanity in some sort of urban environment, um, which means we need to quickly start to focus in on human needs, not human wants, and this is a big differentiator then about where 
the smart cities geographically are are blossoming. Um, in the in, in our case, uh, the majority of our work is being done in the Middle East and Asia, mm-hmm. specifically the People's Republic of China, uh, because of their uh, need to start to take into account that they need to, uh, you know, provide for these folks in a way that they have mechanized their food supply chain so well in the Western provinces of China that we right now have a little over 300 million people migrating as we are talking on this podcast. So if you can, if you could picture people literally walking bicycles, trains, planes, whatever, uh, these are migrants uh, within the, within their own country uh, looking for work. Uh, so they did one really good thing, which is that they smartened up their agricultural uh, world in like the past 40 years, uh, where, you know, I remember growing up in the 70s when they finally opened up, quote unquote, with uh, Nixon, where we were sending over wheat just to make bread. Wow. Like they were starving. Yeah. And now yeah. look at them, you know, so so there's been a huge acceleration of, of, of that, which was great. So they have a safety food supply chain. Uh, uh, solution and also they're feeding themselves uh, very very well and exporting. So what do these uh, you know farmers for all intents and purposes do? Um, and they are going to the East Coast cities where the jobs are. Uh, now this presents a huge problem because those cities are already bursting at the seams. So the idea is to put in uh, absorption cities uh, where we surround certain areas that are going towards the coasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in places like second-tier cities, uh, which in any other country would be a first-tier city in size, uh, like Wuhan, uh, which is sort of like uh, geographically like the St. Louis of China, okay. uh-huh. where, we're, where we're building these absorption cities uh, to start to take the, the, the movement and the migration of these people uh, and giving them jobs, uh, and not just you know low-level jobs, but the education piece of it and and the quality of life issues. Uh, and this becomes a really good framework then for how we are looking at the explosion of all these cities um, uh, in China uh, because of this direct need of not wanting to you know totally sink their existing cities. Uh, but it's being based upon sustainable design and sustainable development. Uh, the UN has published the Sustainable Development Goals or the SDGs. Uh, and I was just in Shanghai, uh, sorry, uh, Shenzhen, uh, just about a month ago, uh, where we were observers as Americans to take, you know, to start to assist with how they're going to implement these goals. And there's mm-hmm. 17 of them, and they range from healthcare to education to cleaner water, cleaner air. Uh, I mean, just just the whole idea of how do you increase the quality of life for sustainable development without having to put on the Superman cape of I'm designing green. I mean, you know. I, I dislike when a lot of people have a lot of acronyms after their name, because when I was going to architectural school, that was just called good design. You know, like we're not <laughs> we're we're not designing things to lead. Lead is a measurement, if, you know, and it's kind of one of those goofy little measurements where you know a lot of people put a lot of their credibility on the uh, on the on the uh, you know up for criticism actually, right? Because yeah, you're you're doing the right thing from the standpoint of making people aware that what we do in our industry is important, um, and it has a significant impact on their lives. And I love that about the whole sustainable movement. What I don't like is when, like I said, people put the Superman cape on and say, "Hey, I'm designing clean." It's like you're supposed to. 
Yeah. You know, yeah, don't right, celebrate right. yourself. You know, I mean, unbelievable. Anyway, long story short, China has huge, huge uh, needs for urbanization and of different types of uh, of design. So, when we, our job as an organization is to provide uh, the master planning mm-hmm. uh, as the owner. So we represent. Uh, you know, private companies in China that work with the Chinese government and also the U.S. government, where our job is to bring American innovation, uh, goods, products, services into these environments that are going to be popping up. And the idea is to provide these environments for great innovation to to start, again, improving safety, security, quality of life, those things, so that people will feel comfortable enough to start to settle down and raise their families and get good education, good health care, that type of thing, so that they stop migrating to these overpopulated cities. That's a long-winded way of saying China has a lot of opportunity, right? So right. so when we work with the U.S. government, it's really interesting because they are hugely supportive of what we're trying to do because we're solving the inventor's dilemma here in the U.S., where you may have a great innovation, a great service, a great you know product, yet how do you get it to market here? You know, have you timed the market too early, too late, or if you do get it, you know the maturation process of a product. Uh, you know what happens if there's a mistake? There are a lot of lawyers here in the U.S., so mm-hmm. it, it, it it there's a lot of barriers to entry. And what we do is we bring it, uh, we bring these over, and we use innovation like ingredients for a recipe. And when we go in, it's not, you know, here's a smart city and here's a cookie cutter. We go save as with a document and we're done. Um, it has to be carefully, carefully uh, uh, put together, almost like, well, like a recipe in the kitchen. Uh, and depending on where you're putting this recipes, um, it's really in the context of need. So when we are dealing with the greenfield cities, it's actually a lot of fun because we can put together things that look like magic, things like autonomous vehicle public transportation systems, right. uh, things like uh, you know renewable energies having to deal with uh, compression technology called piezoelectric, being able to walk, run, jump up and down, and and have a material that's underneath that finish, that floor finish. Uh, when when you're doing that, certain materials that we choose, it vibrates the molecules and we're able to harvest that energy. And there's wow. enough energy there that we're able to power things. So, I mean, really, really breakthrough stuff that is U.S. ingenuity, but we have to do it overseas in order to incubate it. And then over time, as these things mature, these innovations, we can boomerang them back into existing cities. Mm-hmm. So China is one big area that we have our focus. Uh, they have the need, they have a budget, uh, and thankfully, just over time, we've uh, you know, been working in mainland China since 1994. Um, we have a lot of really good relationships. And I think that that's going to be the key as, as all of this smart city stuff moves forward. Um, you have to carefully make sure that it's based upon a human-centric but data-driven world. And what that means is that it's not about the software. It's not about the app. It's about the data that's going to be flowing from the first time you capture it uh, through how you operate and live in the matrix. I mean, that's literally what's being created out there. Mm -hmm. So it's a fun time, and there's a lot of, uh, like I said, the need in China is there. Subsequently, there's a lot of movement also in Saudi Arabia for for our firm, where uh, the Middle East uh, has also a need for urbanization. Um, It's a little tougher over there, uh, only because, uh, you know, especially on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, where they, you know, historically, uh, they, they are a nomadic type of society. 
Um, and they are very family-centric, very conservative. Uh, and this idea of living in an open city, um, you know, in a dense urban environment without having your, you know, your immediate family and also your aunts and your uncles and everything all living in a compound, because that's how they live, mm-hmm. um, is a lot different, a lot different, except that the entire generation uh, from, uh, I'd say, age 25 and under accounts for over 52% of their population. So they are also increasingly getting their education in the UK or here in the US and coming back to Saudi going, I have a different idea. So there's this really interesting conflict and and tension behind the government's idea of how you manage people, which is to condense them, right, and put them into an urban environment so that you get efficiencies of things like water, energy, those types of things. Uh, But then you also have the general public saying, yeah, but, you know, I don't want to live in a single villa, you know, that is done like the U.S. suburbs. Right. So we're, you know, we have to rethink what, what does, what, what does this really, uh, you know, do? So we actually have on staff a, um, uh, a cultural anthropologist that becomes part of our master planning process uh, so that we are very sensitive, again, to putting those ingredients together based upon climate religion, society needs, uh, you know, the cultural needs. And it's, it, it becomes a fascinating exercise of trying to create an environment that's not utopia, but it's also not Blade Runner, right? And there's something in between there that we just have to trust that when, our, when people are put together into a dense urban environment, that for their own good, by the way, but at the same time, not make it like a behavioral study of social engineering, Right. Because you can't figure everything out because the number one thing about people is is that they're irrational. <laughs> so you can create the most amazing space, but they're going to use it the mm-hmm. way that they want to use it. So, yeah, um, those are the two big hotspots right now in the world for real greenfield cities. But when it comes to thought leadership about how do we take these innovations to change change the, uh, an urban environment from the inside out, meaning we – you know, cities took – you know, decades, centuries, millennium to become what they are today. And they hold a soul, or at least most of them do. Uh, Dubai, no. Las Vegas, no. But they actually have a mythology <laughs> about them. Right, right. right. But, but, but all, all these other cities are about soulfulness and wanting to be there because of celebration, because of the creation of mythology. And, you know, which is why New York is New York. is very unique, right? It's why Shanghai is gaining its... its it, it, it's third iteration of what does it want to be? Uh, London, Paris, all the great you know urban environments of the world. Right. Um, uh, how do we start not to recreate that? Um, you know, you know, which is why I joked about Vegas. I, I, I was walking through New York, New York Resort. And I'm going, man, they got it all wrong. They got all the nice, pretty pictures, but that pizza is not New York pizza, man. the authenticity. I think it's, is the word. Yeah, it's the touristy facade is what they capture, not not the actual heart and soul of it, uh, which I think is what you're getting at. Correct, which is why smart city is not just about putting in the latest, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, scanners and and you know IoT and big data and blah blah blah. Um, that's easy. The hard part is to create a soulfulness based on content. That's where the existing cities have a real opportunity because they they're already their story is has, has already begun, 
And it's not going to end. It's just changing chapters, right? Which is why when we when we implement a public transportation system that's based upon autonomous vehicles, um, we have to be very careful about how this is communicated um, and then rolled out. Uh, case in point, uh, we were uh, part of a referendum uh, for the city of Nashville, one of the uh, – fastest growing cities in the world, let alone the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their downtown is transforming from being a honky-tonk country western hee-haw type of thing to being a corporate headquarters where, you know, we have uh, so many different, uh, you know, Bridgestone Tire and Amazon with their operations center, 5,000 jobs in downtown Nashville. Right, right. But they have have a big problem. Downtowns around the U.S. are great um, because they – solved a big problem, right, of expansion across the continent of the United States. Same thing in Canada and same thing in Australia, where these pop-up cities popped up, except they started from the, uh, in, the in the case of the United States, starting the East Coast from being pedestrian and horse and carriage to when you get out to the West, it's all about the car and the automobile. How do we get that back to using sustainable development goals and then measuring how good these cities are to actually live in? And how can we make it more sustainable? And a lot of people throw a lot of other things in it, which is important, things like resilience and blah, 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 blah. Yes, of course. But if you just take the big idea of smart, we have to now start to take it into a human-centric environment, meaning that we should think about wellness. And how do we build into the design of urban environments how many steps it takes for you to get from your home to a mode of transportation? So this is what we supplied to Nashville because they were going through a three to four year study that came to this vote uh, last May saying we think that the transportation issues of, of, uh, of Nashville are, are going to be taken care of by putting in a streetcar system. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> okay. Right. And it's going to cost $9 billion. We have to raise the taxes to be the highest tax base in the United States. Goodness. And people are going, well, we know that we need help because we are car-centric. Our mass transportation is struggling mm-hmm. because they because the demographics have changed. It was in the 60s, 70s, and the early 80s where you know people from downtowns moved out to the suburbs. Yeah. But the work was still back downtown. So you created uh, you know, the whole world rush hour, right? But now, over the past 20 years or so, downtowns all across the US are now populated again with people living there. So and sometimes the jobs are in the suburbs. So you got two-way rush hour traffic. How do you start to even address that? And what we did was we said, well, listen, you know, with newer technologies, we can have the ability to take an autonomous vehicle, which is of course electric vehicles, um, and create dedicated lanes. Because one thing we've learned is that the entire world of thinking that you're gonna have a hybrid world with driverless cars and 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 driver cars. Um, is a freaking disaster. Yeah. Whoever is promoting all this stuff. And you know, I was on CNBC Squawk Box a couple of months ago and I said, Elon and Tesla's doing it wrong. GM's doing it wrong. Toyota's doing it wrong. Mercedes is doing it wrong. All those thought leaders, because all they know is a car-centric design city and world. And they are car manufacturers. So of course it's going to be driverless cars. But what happens when we start to take into account that there's an entire generation coming up that doesn't mind the sharing world? Why does Uber and Lyft exist? Because that's a form of public transportation in a way. So we said, well, let's rethink this. If we have this two-way traffic problem, if we have the need to get people and goods and services from point A to point B, why don't we do a three-layered system that from the suburbs, we're going to have a 20-meter bus that looks like a train, but it doesn't need the infrastructure. All they need is a dedicated lane. 
And mm. so, so we propose that. The second thing is how, you know, it's, it's always the last mile. How do you get to that mode of transportation from your suburban home? And then once you're in the city, do you need to get onto a typical bus route, which is a 12 meter bus, which we still have to have, but then you have to walk from that bus stop to get somewhere. And sometimes that's not the best option. So what we created behind, uh, you know, beyond the 20 meter bus to the, then the traditional 12 meter bus going to bus stops um, is a two meter personal pod, which gets you to that last mile. So literally in our cities that we've designed in Saudi and in China, uh, we don't have vehicular traffic at all. Huh. Um, it's all based upon autonomous vehicles that bring goods, products, and services and emergency services right to the point where it needs to be, which means I don't have stop signs, I don't have traffic lights, and I don't have parking lots in my cities. It's a totally new urban experience. Right, and the fact right. that we can build wellness into it so that your Fitbit is really working well, well, this is the promise of what smart cities are. Smart cities are not just about technology being integrated into the physical environment. It's about thoughtfully through Let's make sure that we're building in a higher quality of life, and then let's let the people, that community, dictate how this thing wants to move forward. So, yeah, um, the, that's really where the existing cities and the new cities have a really interesting tension, but they're learning from each other because I can take, again, matured innovations, bring them back into existing cities where they're not wasting their resources testing everything. It's mm -hmm. tested, it's true. So last May in Nashville, they held a referendum, and our solution won two to one two to one voting. So you know, wow. good, good going citizens of Nashville. Yeah. Now the hard, now the hard part comes, uh, politics and money. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, one thing I love about working in totalitarian governments is like, you know, stuff just gets done. Uh, now, right now, you know, we're, we're working with city council, with the chamber of commerce, with the MTA of Nashville, with the national electric company, uh, sorry, the national electric company, uh, mm -hmm. you know, these, the, the, these groups that are really, really wanting to do the right thing. Um, but you know, <laughs> doing the right thing and then getting it done um, is definitely one of those art rather than science types of exercises. Oh yeah. So we so we're starting off with five units. Uh, they will be delivered uh, this calendar year. Uh, then one of those units needs to go to Altoona, Pennsylvania, because there's an archaic. Uh, process from the federal government that says if you're going to be using any sort of public transportation vehicles, they got to be tested for a year in Altoona, Pennsylvania, because there was a senator called uh, Senator Specter that got that going, and now Altoona actually has a business. So we got to go through this process, which is like laborious, but we have to do. It's fine. Right. So we'll have, we'll have four we'll have four buses uh, uh, going on uh, very specific routes, uh, which will include the Opperland Resort, uh, the uh, the uh, the airport and around the uh, Vanderbilt University area, and we're just going to be learning. One of the cool learning things, Tyler, was uh, was about people's behavior. Where the testing that we've done with uh, with the twenty meter bus, people mm -hmm. love it. It's sort of like when you go to an airport today and you get on a tram to go from you know terminal to terminal. Oh yeah, you know that's an autonomous vehicle, right? And most people right. are going, oh, "This is going to be so scary." It's like, no, you just get on it, you get you know. Get, get, you know, from one point to the other, and you're you done. Don't, you don't even think twice about it anymore. Exactly, except that if you put it out on the street, people lose their crap. Like, <laughs> whoa, right? Except, right. With, except with the twenty meter bus, people feel very comfortable because it's so big. You don't know if there's a driver or not. Sure, sure. With, with the personal pods, people love the driverless because they can talk to their friends, you know, blah 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 blah, blah, blah and they just get to where they're going to go because they feel like they're in control, although they're not driving, right? But our twelve meter bus, we have freaked everyone out. 
Everyone mm-hmm. that gets on mm-hmm. that bus is just like, who's driving this thing? Because it's big enough that you realize that, you know, this thing can hurt people. Number two, it's also a very, very um, uh, interesting thing about human behavior. Uh, they want someone there on the bus in case something goes wrong. So we've had to put a fake steering wheel and a fake driver into every one of our 12-liter buses. Wow. That's just, incredible. Just <laughs> yeah. So, so it, you know, we're learning every day about just these quirky little things of how do people live together as a community, um, maintaining their own identity, creating identity as a community, um, and how does that really work in the you know in the real world, not on a PowerPoint at some conference. Mm-hmm. So, the explosion and the tipping point of, of of smart cities has been great. The problem is the very big elephant and. Everyone thinks they understand smart cities if they're touching a different part of the element of the elephant. So it's one of these really interesting times where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going, guys, you know, let's get to thirty thousand feet here because what you're describing is just an urban innovation. It's not about tying these things together and creating an urban fabric. That's where we need to be thinking: is yeah. you know, how is this really assisting again safety, security, quality of life of people? Not about selling yet another router. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, interesting times. It really seems like, and this is a conversation I've had uh, a couple of times over the last few days, that uh, a lot of what you're saying is let's let's rethink things to get things back towards how people actually use them and what people actually need, not just. And I think that there are a lot of industries that fall into this trap. Uh, not just technology and advancement for technology and advancement's sake, but let's really turn it back around and say, how does this actually impact the lives of people that are going to be using it on a day-to-day basis? And now you've just been, uh, you've just described my sales strategy. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, imagine this, uh, you know, so the way that we work is that we're a four-fee developer for doing master planning. Mm-hmm. And w- within that master plan, we do things like feasibility studies and whatnot, right? Because it's a business, but at this scale, um, this becomes, again, more in the public realm uh, uh, because we're going to be data-driven, which is how things work better uh, because uh, data is the new oil. But how do you start to protect people's privacy? How do you start to uh, address things that seem almost spooky? Right. Because genius platforms are being developed today. Genius platforms are uh, ways of – of having inanimate objects communicate with human beings. Mm-hmm. Okay. And probably a good example of that would be the explosion of these voice assistants, uh, you know, Alexa with the uh, Amazon Echo uh, and Google Assistant, right? Um, and there's going to be more and more and more. Uh, I mean, I've, I've seen some amazing technologies now that are doing it for construction out on the, on the construction site where it's almost like Alexa for building a building to healthcare, you know, uh, all the different paperwork. So if you can imagine the laborious nature of having to fill out forms in front of a keyboard or on your iPhone, that's like so 2018. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's like, like it's, <laughs> it, it, it's really accelerated a lot. Yeah. So, so once you start to capture and the system starts to learn through pattern behavior, uh, it then starts to anticipate your needs because right now I could be like, okay, I'm feeling hungry. I go, Alexa, order me a pizza. It knows my, my, my favorite pizza place. It has my PayPal account and it, and the pizza just arrives. I yeah. don't do it seamless. Right. Yeah. But that's me having a need and having to ask an inanimate object to, to, to perform a task with the genius platforms. It's anticipating your needs. Now this becomes really important for, uh, 
for safety and security in urban environments. Uh, uh, right now, uh, we're involved with a project in uh, just north of Jeddah uh, called Jeddah Economic City. It used to be called Kingdom City, but they changed mm-hmm. the name. Uh, coming up out of the ground right now is a one-kilometer-tall tower. So picture the Sears building and double it. It's going to be uh, – it's it will be the tallest building in the world. Right now, we're about 124 stories tall, so a little bit taller than the Freedom Tower or the Goodness old – Goodness gracious. Right? And yeah. that's that's only halfway. I mean we're getting wow. up to about two well, – oh, a little more than halfway. But we'll be topping out around 253 to 256, mm-hmm. 256 stories. Which means that there are physics involved, right? It's going to be a home for 30,000 people in a vertical city. Uh, But the physics are that when you're that tall, uh, the way that this was designed is that we're trying to limit the sway. Because if we just went straight up, the winds at that height, uh, we'd be uh, having at least a four meter sway at the top. Yeah, you know, which is just—I mean, holy cow, right? So we've designed it in a way where it's twisted at the top that allows it not to move as much, but you're, you're still going to feel movement. So we had to figure out how to create an environment that the building becomes that conscious. It becomes the brains of the building, not just for the typical things like you know, fire suppression, smoke detection, all that other stuff, which has to be there, mm-hmm. but about humans' feelings. About how, you know, can, can I say, you know, Alexa, is this normal? Yes, everything is fine, blah, 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 and this is why. Right. Um, and then move that into the anticipated needs as it starts to learn who you are. Now things get very interesting because now we have a cyber physical relationship. This is what the government's calling the fourth age of the Industrial Revolution, hmm. which is, <clears throat> it seems like magic, but there's some real thought behind it because my job is to have people fall in love with a piece of dirt. And I have to give value to that dirt in order for them to want to move their families and feel comfortable about living there, yeah. moving, moving away from their worlds of, of, of their safety nets. You know, calling up grandma to come over because you know, I you know, I just got tickets to the game and I want to bring my wife somewhere and I need a babysitter. All that mm-hmm. stuff kind of goes away. Yeah. So, yeah. so how does this self-learning world? Uh, and I don't like the term artificial intelligence, but this idea of pattern behavior, machine learning start to really benefit things. And then what are the limits that we need to put on there morally and ethically? So, yeah, you know, like I don't have enough to think about, uh, you know, every day. But, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, these are things that we have to think about because we don't address it. We could be building ourselves, uh, you know, into a corner. And no one wants to have, uh, you know, no one wants to live in Blade Runner. Yet, you know, that's all Hollywood and gaming shows us is that, is that the future is dystopian. It's like that is so lazy in thought process and creativity that um, I just make fun of the people that make stupid movies like that or, <laughs> or, or stupid games. It's like, up your game, man. It's not yeah. about dystopia because guess what? All of us uh, you know, out here may think it may be fun to play in it, but that's a game. When you're talking about real life with real budgets, you better be right because mm-hmm. there's no i mean there's no undoing something <laughs> yeah, like, you don't you don't get take backs in uh, in the real world and in in you know in this type of type of system exactly Absolutely, uh, Paul. I we, I could do this for an hour. This is really fascinating, but unfortunately, we got to go. So, hey, Paul Doherty, the founder and CEO of the Digit Group. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today, and uh, that was incredible. We'll have to do it again soon. Thank you very, very much, Tyler.
telling you, I'm not lying when I say that I could listen to Paul Doherty go on about that for another hour and a half or so, but unfortunately we had to move on. Uh, But coming up next is another great feature on the show this week. It's just a jam-packed show. So, so much going on. And we're going to talk more about hymns uh, coming up next here on the show. That's obviously the 2019 Healthcare Information and Management System Society Conference. And we're going to talk about IoT and how it's integrated into healthcare a little bit more coming up here next on the show. It's going to be a conversation that MarketScale correspondent Shelby Skirhawk had with Irma Rastagayava coming up next here on the MarketScale IoT Podcast. More than 43,000 people attended the Healthcare Information and Management System Society Conference, an exhibition that took place February 11th through 15th in Orlando. Among them was Irma Rastagaiva. She's an industry-noted expert in connected health and IoT and co-founder of Evira Health, a social media consultancy for health tech startups. MarketScale IoT caught up with Irma just after the conference to share her insights from the event. Well, so, so tell me about the most innovative apps, or I guess the, uh, the ones that really caught your eye there at the HIMSS conference. Oh, absolutely. So I'd like to highlight you know, three different types of applications of technology in healthcare that involves IoT that really impressed me. One is Ethan. Ethan stands for Emergency Telehealth and Navigation. So this is a big program that's been rolled out in the city of Houston, a combination with the fire department there and the health department. But the whole program is how effective it's been in reducing non-emergency. So basically triaging calls to the first responder services, calls to 911 for health-related emergencies. So being able to distinguish what's a real emergency and requires trip to the hospital by ambulance, what is case that still requires kind of urgent medical you know, appointment with a specialist and still requires a trip to the ER, but it doesn't have to have happen in the ambulance. And then third result of, of this triage patients is somebody that doesn't actually need an urgent visit and could be seen by a telehealth provider. Also using the telehealth technology, using Panasonic TAFPAD to be able to assist EMTs in evaluating patients on the one side, has uh, doctors on staff who are able to triage the patients in real time. And what I was particularly impressed was clear results that they had demonstrated with this Ethan program. So, you know, for example, just in the Houston Emergency uh, Center, you know, they have 9,000 calls per day. And it turns out that less than 30% of those are actual true emergencies. So when they're able to properly triage and offer guidance to patients, then they really um, end up saving a lot of money, but also helping with patient experience improvements. So if somebody doesn't have to go to the emergency room and spend eight hours or so, so that's pretty impressive. What were some of the other apps that you saw? One thing that was really kind of mind-blowing for me was the um, OR of the future, so Operating Room of the Future, and that's actually a combination of three different companies, three different types of technologies coming together to provide surgeons uh, with a really impressive opportunity to pre-plan surgical interventions. This is where patient experience comes, uh, comes into play as well because patients are able to see kind of the simulation of how 
the surgeon will do the surgery. So this operating room of the future is really a combination of uh, virtual reality, as I mentioned, so that the magic leap, so you use magic leap goggles, so virtual reality goggles that are combined with uh, Brain Lab. Brain Lab is a company that uh, does the uh, software uh, 3D brain visualization. And, um, and now all of that is powered by at and you know, connectivity technology. There is a large reduction in a variety of equipment that has to be maintained in the operating room. So what you see uh, with these 3D virtual reality goggles on is you see full 3D representation of, say, the brain. So if there is a tumor, so you see all of the structures in the brain, so healthy tissue, tumor itself, all the vital organs there and uh, nerves, etc. And you could actually zoom in and walk in and walk around the brain and just see um, all of these uh, elements in, in, in tremendous detail. What particularly draws me to this, uh, to this is I see the uh, tremendous progress that's been made in this field over the last 20 years or so, because I actually, in my past life as a software engineer, I used to work on uh, treatment planning systems for neurosurgeons to treat brain uh, tumors and brain aneurysms uh, using radio surgery and image-guided surgery. So at th- in those days, patients had a, a brain tumor that was to be treated with radio surgery. Um, then they had to literally have a special metal frame bolted onto the skull in order to achieve the submillimeter um, accuracy of the treatment. So the patient would, with that frame on, get a series of CT, uh, CT images that would be scanned in. And then on the, these 2D image slices, a medical physicist would uh, actually outline the critical structure. So the, uh, the brain stem, the optical nerves, the eyes. And then from those 2D images, the software would actually reconstruct this 3D representation and then use all of that um, information in the planning process of planning the radio, radioactive, um, you know, delivery of radiation towards the tumor or around the tumor. So now none of that is necessary. There is no frame to be attached to the patient's head. There is um, uh, no um, medical physicist outlining the structures. It's all just done automatically from um, CT or MRI images of the patient attached and it gives uh, tremendous um, accuracy in planning the procedure. And it's not just for brains. I, I talked a lot about kind of how this looks um, with brain, but another uh, demo that I um, that I participated in, that I tried, was for, let's say, spine surgery. So this is where this AR system tracks um, instruments and overlays. Uh, so as you you know, as you approach, let's say, back back of a patient as they lay on the operating table, you see the um, like the spine and the the muscles and all the organs in there kind of overlaid over your surgical site. And at the same time, this is what the power of the Magic Leap goggles gives you: is you also uh, can just look up and you see three displays. You see the um, kind of the microscope view of your s- surgical uh, approach. And then you see the 2D images laid out. Let's say if you were looking at the MRI CT scans that were done prior to surgery. So you can cross-reference to that information. And the third display uh, right there, just as you tilt your head slightly, is all the vitals. So, um, 
And uh, and also one thing that they're working on is tracking of all the instruments. So there's a lot of instruments in the surgery, you know, in the surgery of that complexity. And then so the system also understands which instruments which surgeon uses, and eventually what they're trying to do is uh, come up with kind of specific protocols of what exactly which instruments uh, are used for every type of surgery, and then uh, for a specific surgeon what instruments they prefer and then it's just the kind of data that could um, improve the, the workflow and planning for surgeries in the future etc so there was just a, there was a lot there to get excited about um, from a patient patient advocate perspective or a technologist perspective but that additional element of wow and surprise for me was just having been in this field myself some decades ago just how much progress has been made and uh, while it actually looked quite futuristic, um, I think the plans to really pilot this and get this implemented um, is like within six months or in six months, this will be actually in use. And then what was, uh, I guess, what was the, the third um, app that, that you said that really intrigued you? Yeah, so this is, um, this is more of a system. It's a little bit of a pivot and you wouldn't think necessarily that this is um, something to... Uh, get so excited about, but I did, and I'll tell you why. So Philips introduced its IntelliSpace epidemiology solution, which is the, actually, it's the first system that combines live clinical informatics with genetic fingerprinting of bacterial pathogens, and that is in an effort to contain and eliminate healthcare-associated infections. So a big problem when patients go into hospital, is a hospital-acquired infection. Um, yeah, so actually, this is um, this is the first effort to look at a, at a variety of data across kind of the entire hospital system and cross-reference it with uh, specific kind of epidemiology information and genomics in order to get a handle on understanding um, what specific bacteria exist in a given hospital um, and to be able to trace it from, you know, kind of anywhere in the hospital, tracing a particular patient and understanding every everyone, who, what uh, personnel or equipment had touched that patient from the first point of their being admitted through anywhere they had traveled in the hospital, and that includes all kinds of testing or surgeries or anything that they had um, experienced in the hospital. So all of that variety of data is collected and is used together intelligently to come up with, well, to first understand what kinds of infections are going on on an individual basis, but then use this data on a kind of like a hospital level to understand if there is actually a, a, uh, a cluster of a particular infection that's happening and it might be linked to a particular instrument that's been used. Um, and then sort of track down that particular endoscope, let's say, that's been used and take it out of service if it had been determined that that's been contaminated. It was just, um, that was very um, interesting to me and exciting in a, a whole different way. Right, right. 
And one last thing as uh, as we wrap up. So uh, you mentioned you're a social media influencer um, and, and keeping up with uh, with all of the developments at Hims. I was uh, flipping through your Twitter feed and I kept on finding this hashtag pink socks. Explain what that is. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you, you brought that up. So pink socks, uh, hashtag pink socks is a movement. It's now a global movement that highlights the importance of empathy and um builds on kind of strong uh, um, human-to-human connections and positivity and helping him, helping them through a power of community. So it started with healthcare and kind of patient focus, but it uh, spread beyond uh, just patients, although it has still a very strong um, presence in, in the healthcare field. And actually, the, the way it, it all links uh, to healthcare is because we now know there's a number of studies that had shown that people who are positive and optimistic and those that have a support system have um, much better health outcomes, um, whether that's not getting sick in the first place or recovering better from elements of surgeries. So, yeah, so pink socks is a, is a real movement. That's exciting. Well, Arma, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. And I I really appreciate uh, you being on the show. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much, Shelby. It was a pleasure. For MarketScale IoT, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. It has been an absolutely jam-packed show this week. Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of the show. Unfortunately, it had to come to an end at some point, but thank you to both of our guests. Thank you also to Shelby, our correspondent, for conducting that last interview. Really enjoyed that look at HIMSS and some of the technology that is going into improving healthcare uh, in this country. So thank you so much to Shelby for that. That is all we have time for on this week's episode of the Market Scale IoT Podcast. We have a lot of other episodes of this podcast, so if this is the first time that you're listening or you've missed some episodes, make sure to go back to marketscale.com and find those other episodes that you've missed and get caught up. And uh, it'll really tide you over until our next Market Scale IoT episode. As I mentioned before, we'll be back soon with another episode of the podcast. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.